Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the wonderful Word of Life, Gospel of Mark. Such a joy to have some of our church family back from travels and some illness. I know we still have some out for the Thanksgiving holiday. We do give thanks. We give special thanks this week for our church family. For your prayers and kind words through a tough week for our family, they are so much appreciated. It lifted our spirits, even as we rise to sing and praise this morning, to put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. God has so richly supplied all that we need to walk faithfully before him. He does not call us to anything he does not first equip us to do. He has told us, Micah 6, 8, what is good and what does the Lord require of us but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We are so grateful for times in our lives that bring the reality of God's word home to us. So again, we thank you all sincerely. Well, this week, as we begin our first Sunday of Advent, we continue our prayer and our remembrance with Voice of the Martyrs for the last time this month for the persecuted church around the world. And each week this month, we have remembered those who have gone before us in paying the ultimate price for their testimony of Jesus Christ. And there are so many, literally hundreds of thousands of brave souls that have stood, and it's been difficult to choose But I wanted to finish our month out with one that has always been particularly impactful in my life, that of the reformer Jan Hus. Now, writing in the John Hus collection, Jason Bradley tells of this time toward the end of the 14th century. It was then that John Wycliffe's influence was beginning to really permeate the Christian world. Wycliffe's convictions, such as his affirmation of the priesthood of every believer and his belief in every believer to have access to the scripture in his or her own language that ran contrary to every aspect of organized religion at the time. Of course, Wycliffe's ideas were by no means universally popular. Of course, in fact, it's said that upon reading Wycliffe's works, an indignant scribe in Bohemia, which is now part of the Czech Republic, responded, oh good God, do not let this man come into our beloved Bohemia. Wycliffe's influence couldn't be stopped, though, and his teachings circulated into Bohemia in the, 18th, in the 1380s. Well, it was in this very same Bohemia, in the years 1369, that Jan Hus was born. And he soon discovered Wycliffe's teachings while at the University of Prague. And Hus went on to be ordained as a priest, and at the turn of the century, he was made a rector of the university. And although many of Wycliffe's works were denounced by the church, Hus actually helped to translate and to distribute Wycliffe's works far and wide. Even the Bethlehem Chapel, where Hus took over preaching and teaching duties, was also a platform for these reformed teachings. Now, during this time, there was a huge controversy about different popes. And given Hus's well, very strong stand on this matter, this put him right in the crosshairs. In 1414, the Council of Constance was organized to put an end to the church's papal controversy. And Hus was called before the council to give an account of his doctrine. And although he attended under a promise of safety, they lied to Hus. And when he arrived, he was immediately arrested. And it was during Hus's incarceration that this very council actually declared Wycliffe a heretic. 
And even though Wycliffe had died some years earlier from a stroke, that wasn't good enough for the council that he already be dead. They burned Wycliffe's books first, and then they exhumed and incinerated Wycliffe's body and had his ashes thrown into the river. But Hus was brought before the council, and his beliefs, mainly that Christ and not the Pope was head of the church, the truth of predestination, separation of church and civil power, a belief that communion be available in both bread and cup to all, those were enough to have Jan Hus condemned as a heretic. Now, on July 6, 1415, Hus was given an opportunity to recant. Of course, when he refused, he was taken to the cathedral, he was stripped, and he was led to the courtyard. He was tied to the stake and given one last chance to renounce his beliefs. And Hus responded, quote, Lord Jesus, it is for thee that I patiently endure this cruel death. I pray thee, have mercy on my enemies. And Peter of Madavich, a follower of Hus and a witness of his execution, wrote that Hus sang psalms while being engulfed by flames. And Hus's execution started a rebellion, and his followers, which were called Hussites, defeated many of the emperor's attacks and continued the call for reforms. And what became known as Hussite thought didn't just outlive its founder. It went on to change the world. Wycliffe's and Huss's radical ideas were soon fanned into a flame by Martin Luther. In fact, Martin Luther even referred to himself as a Hussite. But it was a side comment by Jan Hus as he was being led to his execution that remains ingrained in history. You see, in Czech, the word Hus means goose. And as he was being taken to his death, Hus was heard to say, you are now about to burn a goose, but in a century you will have a swan, which you can neither roast nor boil. Jan Hus, was known as, Jan Hus, who was known as the goose, spoke that day greater than he knew. A hundred years later, Martin Luther would arise and challenge the church. And those of you who know church history recall that Martin Luther was known as the swan. Jan Hus is now known as the goose before the swan. We sit here today as Protestant believers on the shoulders of these men, like the goose. But that goose turned into a swan. While we are ever reforming, we need a new reformation in Christ's church. Being called back to the authority, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of Scripture. So I pray that we might do our small part here this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, we left off our Gospel of Mark, having completed chapter 11 at long last. And we watched in wonder as Jesus had quite literally returned to the scene of the crime as the religious elite saw it, having just the day before cleared out the court of the Gentiles in the temple. With such stamina and vigor, it was a miracle in and of itself. Ten football fields worth of stalls and animals. A sight to behold. The sounds and the smells of such an event would have been truly unforgettable. And indeed, it was unforgettable. Not only had Jesus exposed and openly rebuked the hypocrisy of the, what Judaic worship had degraded into, but Jesus hit them right in the pocketbook as well. 
And recall from our earlier teaching that this entire outer area of the court of the Gentiles was known as the bazaars of Annas, named after the high priest who essentially had his fingers in all of the pie. A place where 10 cent doves that were offered by the poor for sacrifice were sold for the equivalent of three to four dollars inside the temple walls. It was wicked, and Jesus would have none of it. And you'll recall that it was essentially here, having poked the religious elite in the eye and exposing their racket, that Jesus' death warrant was well and truly signed. He was a dead man walking at this point. They just needed to get him by Jewish law. And that's exactly what we witnessed at the end of chapter 11. Of course, Jesus did not simply slip back into the temple. But the gospel accounts say that Jesus was teaching and preaching there, walking all around inside the court of the Gentiles. He's not hiding. Why? Because it's time. It's time. God's divine timetable for the sacrifice of his son, for the redemption of his children, was at hand. And thus we saw quite a confrontation at the end of chapter 11. We witnessed the chief priests and the scribes and the elders all approach Jesus. Now that's basically a long way for saying this is the Sanhedrin. These are the top dogs of all religious life in all of Israel. This was the Jewish high court. They were the go-betweens between the Jews and the Romans. So they exercised both political and religious authority in Israel. Recall that the body of the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 men who were led by the high priest. And this was established going all the way back to Ezra's day. We saw that there was no higher earthly, spiritual, Judaic authority than the ones that engaged Jesus in our last scene. And while the Sanhedrin approached Jesus in what would have been a, a tremendous scene, right? The, the waters would have parted. The people would have split as the Sanhedrin made their way through the crowd. Yet even as they were coming in attack mode, we saw them put their finger right on the crux of the matter, didn't they? They actually asked an eminently reasonable question. By what authority are you doing these things? What a perfect question. Because the issue of authority is exactly what is at stake and in question here. And we titled the last sermon, The Might and the Right. That's what it means to have authority in this sense. You need both the might and the right to possess true authority. So their question in long form is, Jesus, by what might and what right do you accomplish what you just did yesterday? That is the question at hand. Everything is a question of authority, exousia. Nothing has changed, right? The reason the world hates Christ is because he claims all authority. Nobody makes Jesus Lord of their life, as we so often hear. He is Lord, whether they want him to be or not. The only question is whether or not we will submit to his lordship on this side of eternity or not. But make no mistake, he is Lord. He possesses all exousia, all authority, and every knee will bow. Of course, in our last scene, Jesus sees the raging heart of the Sanhedrin, the evil that was stored therein. They're not asking Jesus these questions with a desire to know. They're asking with a desire to trap and to ensnare Jesus. They already want him killed for what he had done yesterday. 
Now they just need to get him by law. Really, they want Jesus to blaspheme, is what they want him to do. And so he posed a question to them, didn't he? If you could answer the question, he would tell you by what authority he cleared the temple as he did. And the question we saw in chapter 11, verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Of course, we see Jesus in complete perfection place these wicked leaders right on the horns of a dilemma, exposing their hearts, exposing their pragmatism in ministry, exposing their fear of man, exposing whose kingdom they actually wished to build and protect. They were not about God's glory. They were about their own. So their answer to Jesus would not be based or rooted in truth or conviction, but in expediency. They cared not for their own position, They cared only for their own position, rather, and their own comfort, and their own ego. And thus their condemnation was sealed. When Jesus told them at the end of chapter 11 that he would not tell them by what authority he did these things, he's saying, I'm done with you. I'm through with you. You would not believe even if I told you. He gave them over to the wickedness He knew they were already plotting. Well, today we continue on in Wednesday of Passion Week, beginning in chapter 12. You'll find this to be a very busy, very well-documented day of Jesus' final days of ministry. Virtually all of Mark 12 and 13 are going to be a, a litany of confrontation, of speaking and teaching one thing after another, both with Jesus' disciples and with the religious elite. The next two chapters are going to be a barrage in all aspects. And it will take us some time to churn our way through such treasures. And to be sure, we would all be prone to say, we would all be prone to say our most important things if we knew we only had 48 hours to live, wouldn't we? And in many ways, Jesus is doing just that. The frame and the context is most helpful and necessary. Well, this morning we find ourselves in a parable. Indeed, a parable and a prophecy. Now, parables are nothing new to us, though Mark has fewer than other Gospels. Our last major parable that we did a deep dive into was our, I believe, three-part series on the parable of the soils back in Mark 4. Seems like an eternity ago, I know. But before we embark on this journey of what is often titled the parable of the vine growers, let us approach our text with the appropriate goggles on. Let us make sure that we have our parable lenses on. As as we've often taught and demonstrated, whether it's a gospel narrative or an epistle or wisdom literature, or today a parable, we must read and understand it with the genre in mind. What is a parable? What was the purpose of a parable? Why did Jesus often speak in parables? Indeed, Matthew 13, 34 tells us all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. That sounds like something we should know about, doesn't it? So let us quickly look at the what and the why of parables. Now, a parable is most often referred to as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. They are extended analogies. They are illustrations. Now note there we said analogies, 
not allegory. Easy to confuse the two words, and it can make an utter difference of night and day for how you read your Bible. When we approach the text from a historical, grammatical perspective, I do not believe that Scripture contains allegory. But it does certainly contain analogies, like parables, like our text today. Now, prior to the Reformation, there was an entire interpretation method to Scripture that revolved around allegory. And it yielded some hyper-spiritualized results that ended up missing the meaning entirely. So I had this question off now to save the inevitable question after church in the doors. Pastor, how is a parable not allegory? Allegory takes something that is material and that is, that is meant to represent something that is immaterial. A person, place, or thing, something that's physical that represents a virtue or a vice. An excellent example of this would be Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. That is an allegory. One person represents hope. Another person represents faith. Another legalism and so on. That is allegory. Jesus is not doing that in parables. He is representing the physical to the physical. Meaning human beings, their words, their deeds, their hearts. I don't wish to belabor the point, but missing this can send someone down the path of reading with wrong goggles on. So to that end, we know as an expository congregation that we, we often, we mine every jot and tittle, don't we? For precious gems contained therein. But with parables, we have a different set of goggles on. Remember, this is a story. And the story has a takeaway. The story has a meaning. That's the meat and the purpose. But like many stories, there are words and there are elements and peoples, places, things that are in there that are simply meant to get you to the meaning. They're the vessel. They don't carry any meaning in and of themselves. So a danger in reading parables is that we try to attach some sort of deep meaning to every little word in the story. That's not how parables are meant to be read. In fact, if you do that, you'll likely miss the correct meaning. You'll miss the meat. You'll miss the forest for the trees, as it were. So you will notice as we go through our parable this morning over the next two-part series that we will not dissect every word as we so often do because that's not how we read parables. It's not the intent of the author, and that's what ultimately matters, isn't it? So I, as we belabor the point a bit on what a parable is, it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It is an analogy or an illustration, right, that comes alongside a truth to communicate it. We must also belabor what it is not. It is not allegory. So what else does our parable today not do? It does not contain any secret knowledge. Fancy word for that is esoteric, meaning it's a secret that only a few can know. And we can find those secret esoteric keys in parables to unlock the truth. That also is not true. Nothing is secret in what Jesus was saying. You will often hear the correct saying that the purpose of a parable, the why of the parable, is to reveal and to conceal. To reveal and to conceal. Matthew Henry writes that parables make the things of God, quote, 
more plain and easy to those willing to be taught and at the same time more difficult and obscure to those who are willfully ignorant. Close quote. But what makes it difficult or obscure for the unbeliever? What makes it difficult? Is it a matter of not grasping the concept intellectually? Absolutely not. The lost generally understand what you are telling them. They're not intellectually inferior. Lost does not mean dumb. They get it. They just don't want it. It's a matter of the will and of moral volition. It is that of the heart, not necessarily that of the mind. In fact, as we will see in our parable, the Sanhedrin knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and it inflamed them even further. You know, when talking about the trials of life, you've often heard me say that we are all potatoes or eggs, right? The boiling waters of trials will either soften you or harden you, depending on what you are. And in a sense, parables accomplish a very similar thing. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see, they will respond with a softening of heart. For those that are not being saved and regenerated, it's not that they cannot intellectually grasp what you're telling them. It is that they don't want it. The parable is a hard boiling. The parable is hard boiling that egg. And that will be precisely the effect upon the religious elite upon hearing our parable today. Now, far from being hidden or secret in the story, they will clearly get it. And of course, ultimately, they will kill Jesus for it. So I recognize that's a bit of an intro to our text, but it's ever so important, beloved. We must read our Bibles correctly. We must read it correctly. So with that, let's look to our text. Now, I'm going to read it all as one this morning, though we'll not get through it all today. We'll be examining it in two parts, that of parable and that of prophecy. So look with me to Mark 12, 1 through 12. Mark 12, 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is their heir. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
and they were seeking to seize him. And yet they feared the crowd, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text that you've given us today. Lord, even as it is a parable of warning and a parable of judgment, Lord, directed at the religious elite, Lord, there is much to say to us this morning. Lord, this is a mirror as well for us to look into that we might see our hearts, that we may see ourselves as we are, that we may not go away unchanged. Heavenly Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit would wield this word in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, we have mountains to climb here, so let's dive right into our first verse. No time for an opening story. Verse 1, verse 1, but I shan't even get past the first word without making a note. And that's okay to do because we're not actually in the parable yet. So our first word is and. That's a connector word, right? We can't miss that. Meaning that Jesus, what Jesus is about to say is a result of the entire exchange that we just read at the end of chapter 11. Here is a prime example of the disadvantage of having chapter and verse inserted into Scripture, right? We tend to separate them in our minds when that happens, but we shouldn't. This flows right out of chapter 11. They are one scene. So the question we're left with was, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you. But in truth, what he was saying is that I'm not going to tell you plainly, but I am going to infer, and you're going to see that I'm claiming to be the beloved son in verse 6. Now back to our text, and he began to speak to them in parables. Well, as we had mentioned before, Jesus used this type of teaching style continuously. In fact, you'll remember from Mark 4.34, it says he did not say anything to them without using a parable. Right? So we have over 35 parables that are recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Remember, that means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in this regard, what Jesus is about to do really is kind of business as usual. He always spoke like this. But there's something unique about this one. If you'll recall in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, that, that whole chapter is positively filled with parables. It's one after the other. But when asked about it by his disciples, Jesus says what? Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So prior to this, parables were given in the positive sense, to instruct those who would hear and believe. But here in Matthew, we see a judgment has been declared, a giving over has occurred. And now the parables will only serve to be rejected by them. They will not understand, so they cannot understand. That is what makes today's parable unique. It makes it unique. Look down at your Bibles to verse 12, beloved. Look there. To the end of our parable, what does it say? In verse 12, For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. This is a warning parable. This is the one you're going to get this. You're going to understand this. You are going to understand this one. And it's going to expose your wickedness. That makes this parable unique. So I want us to grasp that. 
So now as we finally open up this story, what is going to happen? What is Jesus about to do? Big picture. He's going to do two things. One, he's going to tell the people that are going to kill him that they're going to kill him. That's what he's going to do. And second, he will confront the hypocrisy of Israel. You who lay claim as God's chosen people have done nothing but kill the messengers God has sent to you since the beginning. So have those two elements in mind as we dive into our parable and prophecy. That's your big picture frame. Read with me, beloved. I'll read. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Well, let us first identify our three characters in play here in verse 1. Who is the man here who has planted and prepared the vineyard? That is God. Who is the vineyard? That is Israel. Who are the vine growers or the tenants or the farmers? This is the religious leadership of Israel. A big picture, how do we know this? We know this because Jesus is lifting this almost verbatim from Isaiah chapter 5. Essentially word for word. So that gives us our immediate meaning, our context, and our color. It gives us everything. If we understand Isaiah 5, we're going to understand this. Now, in Isaiah 5, we see what is called the song of the vineyard. It is a song of judgment. God is saying that I have built this beautiful vineyard. I have provided and prepared everything for her. And I have done so that I might have good fruit, that I might have good grapes. But even after much toil, all we get are sour grapes. I have toiled and labored for my vineyard, but it is continuously worthless. So I'm going to judge the vineyard. I'm going to remove my protection, and it's going to be destroyed. The song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5 is the prophecy of Israel's judgment and destruction that was coming from the hands of the Babylonians. So if our listeners to Jesus today were keen of ear and learning, they would know if you are quoting Isaiah, if you're doing that, you're proclaiming judgment. God has labored with great care to plant and to protect and to provide, and it is continuously worthless. But thus far, the meaning probably hasn't dawned on the religious leaders quite yet. So far, this story is pretty low-key, right? This was a common transaction in this story, the owner rents out the vineyard to tenants. They, typically, a vineyard takes about five years or so to produce good, usable grapes. About five years. Now, that matters because we need to see the patience and the long-suffering of God, which will come even more into focus as we move forward. So thus, the man has built a vineyard, and he's entrusted this vineyard to the vine growers. And he leaves. He goes on a journey meaning they have their marching orders. They know the rules. They know the agreement. And I, the owner, have told you, and I fully expect it to be obeyed. You have all you need to be successful and prosperous. Now, as anticipated, what happens in verse 2? Verse 2. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from 
the vine growers. Now, again, this is absolutely to be expected, but a critical application lurks between the lines. We see in Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 23 through 25, that the farmer was to wait that five years, he must wait that five years, before harvesting the grapes for usage. That was the law. And of course, the owner would usually then share in about 50% of the crop. But what happened over the first five years, which is the time we're in right now? In normal circumstances, the tenants, the vine growers, during those five years when they were not harvesting the grapes that would grow, they would grow vegetables and produce in between the grapes. So the owner would often come during that time and he would partake of those vegetables in the meantime to maintain and to assert his rights over the property. Now, it was a way not only for owners to realize a benefit during that five years, but it was a way to tangibly remind the farmers who owned this land. But what has happened in our story? Has the owner stayed there and asserted his rights every day? Saying, here I am, I'll take 50% of those vegetables, thanks. No. What did the owner do? He went on a journey. Luke's gospel says he went on a long journey. This long journey represents what? It represents the entire timeline of the Old Testament. What begins to happen to the workers, to the tenants? Out of sight, out of mind, yes? He's not here every day. They begin, as he's not here every day, they begin to see this land as their own. Because he's not there to physically assert himself, they grow comfortable with his absence. But nothing has changed. Ownership hasn't changed. They simply have a master who is unseen. They have been able to eat all the vegetables and all the produce seemingly without consequence. How many of us live in such a way? How often we sin and see no immediate consequence to our action. Many in the world live quite happy lives, living how they please. They see no consequence to their daily life. Many live with the notion that judgment delayed is judgment denied. This reminded me as I was thinking about it, I observed with a, an interaction I observed with a friend of mine who's a very prolific evangelist, and he was interacting with a very belligerent man, to put it mildly. And in arrogance, the man, he lifted up his arms and he yelled horrible epithets against God, profane blasphemy. And then he yelled, see, nothing happened. My evangelist friend said, yes, it did. You just stored up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. But because the master, the owner is unseen, he's gone on a long journey. And we've become quite comfortable eating all the goods. And we've done so with impunity. I'm just going to go on keeping as I always have. And in fact, I've grown so fond of eating all of these vegetables with no owner in sight. I think I'd like to keep the grapes as well when they come in. I'm the one who's done all the work. He hasn't been here for five years. It harkens back to the time of the judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. 
Judges 17.6. There is no king here. There is no authority visible here. We see so many places in the Old Testament where the word of the Lord was rare. And it accompanied wicked times. They forgot their God. They forgot there was an owner of the vineyard who makes the rules and will have his portion. And what do we see God do in these times? When wickedness is taking hold in the vineyard in Israel. What does he do? Time and time again, he sends them messengers. He sends them prophets. Does he not? Here in our text, verse 2, that is who the sent slave represents. The slave being sent to collect the fruit. They are sent by the owner, by the master. Prophets and messengers sent to Israel, sent to the religious leadership of Israel who had forgotten to whom they belong. Who not only forgot the Lord their God, but they plotted wickedness and evil against the very ones sent by God. And what happens? Verse 3. Verse 3. They took this slave, they took him, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Now, up until this point, there's really nothing in this story that would have given Jesus' hearers any pause. Everything has been pretty much business as usual. But here is where Jesus begins to reveal. He's about to turn the heat up on them. Here is where his hearers would sit up and take notice, right? Asking, what is going on here? It says that they beat him. Now, our English fails us here a bit, as it always does. The word for beat here is darrow. Translated literally means to remove the skin, to strip off skin, to flay, meaning the slave was scourged. Now this action would be unheard of to the listening audience. It would be thought utterly wicked, unthinkable to do such a thing. Can you almost sense the wheels starting to turn in the religious leaders' minds? That's what's starting to happen. Those sent on behalf of God throughout Israel's history met just such a fate, or worse. Consider the writer of Hebrews chapter 11 detailing this very truth. What is Israel's past toward those who would truly represent God, toward those who would bring his truth with God's glory and God's kingdom being the highest good? Unlike the hearers today. Listen to the author of Hebrews. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That is what Israel does to her prophets. That's what she does to those who are sent to her. But you see, these tenants, these vine growers are on a path. They are on a path to possess that which is not theirs. And they have a plan to do it. Look at verses 4 and 5. I'll read them as one. And again, he sent them another slave. And they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. 
Now can you hear the heartbeat of Jesus when he cries, Oh, Jerusalem! Oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. You sent one after the other. Behold the long-suffering patience of God in our lives. Behold the faithfulness of God to bring his word to his people, even when we harden our hearts, when we forget all that he's done, when we block out and we cup our ears to those that God has sent to correct and to rebuke us. The temptation in verses 4 and 5 here is to continue to focus on the awful deeds of the tenants, isn't it? How they killed one after the other. But the continual flow of servants to the vineyard, to the vineyard, is a clarion call about the owner. Is it not? If even more than the tenants. The shock value of Jesus' story is now less on the tenants, right? They're bad. We get it. They skinned your last servant alive. Now the amazement shifts to the owner, does it not? Why does he keep on keeping on? Jesus wants these religious leaders to be reminded of the continual faithfulness of God, even as their nation, under their leadership, has lived and dwelled in wickedness. Is that not a word for us today? Yes. We need to see the judgment that is declared in this parable, this parable and prophecy of warning. We also need to understand the heart of the owner, the heart of the master. Oh, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Both are two sides of the same coin. You were given time after time, chance after chance. For Israel, the manifestation of their hardened heart was what? It was to kill the messenger. You say, how cruel and uncivilized. How wicked. But beloved, if we walk out of here this morning, the same way in which we came, We kill the messenger fresh and anew. Though no blood is shed, the outcome is the same. We must heed the word and heed the warning. Now as our parable begins to recede, one more will be sent to this vineyard, the owner's own son. Surely they will not harm the son. Surely they will listen and will heed such a man. Well, here in our next message, our parable turns to prophecy. May we not harden our hearts or close our ears as in the days of the rebellion. May we not kill the prophets anew this morning, but heed the word with gladness. Beloved, he has made all provision, all protection, and has planted you beautifully. So rejoice in the God of your salvation. Listen to his word and joyfully obey it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a revealer of hearts. It pierces the joint and the bone. Lord, it is the discerner of our intents. Heavenly Father, as we look into this text, the mirror of this text we ask that we would not leave changed, 
Lord, we ask that we would not kill the prophets anew, that we would not slay the messengers anew, but that we would heed the word, the good word, the wonderful word of life. Keep us, Heavenly Father, until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.